Hello, and welcome to the Still to be Determined podcast, the podcast that follows up on topics from the YouTube channel Undecided with Matt Farrell. I'm not Matt Farrell. I'm Sean Farrell. I'm his older brother. I'm a writer, and I'll be asking the questions. Matt is with me here. Say hello. Hello. Matthew will be providing the answers as usual. Before we get into the episode, just wanted to remind everybody of the ways to support the podcast. There is, of course, listening, like you may be doing right now. There is watching on YouTube, which you may be doing right now. <laughs> there's liking, there's subscribing, there's leaving comments, and there's recommending us to your friends. There's also the way to support us directly. That's at stilltbd.fm. There's a link on that page, and you can put some pennies in the jar, and we appreciate any kind of support that you're able to give. All of it really helps. Before we get into this episode, I wanted to jump on some of the comments from our last episode. That episode was one where we discussed solid state batteries. And first in the comments, as usual, friend of the podcast, friend of the channel, Roger Starkey. <laughs> he writes, Sean now understands the concept that the car simply has to outrange the driver and then fill while the driver empties. This is also known as miles per bladder. I think that this is the best way to measure the efficiency of a vehicle. And unfortunately for me, my miles per bladder is extremely low. <laughs> Andrew Hunt had this suggestion. TBD podcast equals two bald dudes podcast. So I like that a lot. I like that too. <laughs> the, when the podcast was named, it was literally like, oh, it's it matches up with undecided. You're undecided. So the name of the podcast is to be determined. So it was that kind of play. But some of the suggestions we're getting are a little too on the nose. So I think two bald dudes <laughs> might in fact be the one that lives them all. Yes. Michael Yale responded to my movie suggestion of I care a lot. And he wrote, I watched that movie. It scared the hell out of me. I get you, Michael. It is a scary movie. Not because for me, not because of the, the elements around potential mob violence, but just from the depiction of how somebody can manipulate the legal system to abuse somebody who's older. And it really did sort of pull back a curtain that was like, yikes, I don't want to know that that things that those kinds of things can actually happen. And finally, from Sean Bradshaw, Sean wrote, the top thing on my things to witness before I die is fusion power delivery to consumers. It'd be neat to see people on Mars, but that's just neat exploration thing. It's not going to solve major problems in the world. I agree with Sean. That sounds like a great thing to see and that it would have tremendous immediate impact on the lives of people all around us. So I would like to see that as well. Now into today's episode, where we're going to be discussing Matt's most recent episode on his channel. This episode was, Can Electric Trucks Challenge Diesel? Question <laughs> mark. The future of heavy transport. Yep. This episode dropped on April 27th, 2021. And a lot of the surprising imagery around this was how many of the truck manufacturers have basically just said, let's make these futuristic vehicles look like the old vehicles. These yeah. look like trucks that could have rolled off an assembly line in 1970. Yes. And I'm wondering how much... How much do aesthetics play a part in acceptance and rejection of this kind of newer technology? Do you, do you see anything going on with these companies saying, well, we don't want to alienate our consumers, so let's make this look like the thing they know, versus Tesla, who is saying, we are building you the future. Come join us. Yeah, I think, I think when it comes to consumer trucks, like pickup trucks, I think it does make a big difference. Like if you want to get the acceptance factor, it's like if it's going to be a pickup, it should kind of look like a pickup that people expect. So it's like when you see Rivian or the Ford F-150 electric truck, it's like it's not a shock that, hey, that looks like a truck where the cyber truck looks like something that landed on Mars. Um, but when it comes to semi trucks, I don't think that's an issue. I don't think the companies would care one way or the other. It's like if it's going to save them money in the long run and still allow them to deliver what they need to deliver, 
for less money. It's like th they don't care. <laughs> They're not going to care at yeah. all. You mentioned that Pepsi is investing yeah. in some of these vehicles. I was wondering, do you know of any other companies, any other smaller companies that might be doing the same thing? Well, pretty much all of them, like UPS, FedEx, um, Pepsi. Uh, Did the U.S. Company. mail service, wasn't that an announcement oh, recently? <laughs> don't even bring them up. Have you seen that vehicle, Sean? No, I have, have not. Have you seen their new delivery vehicle? It looks like something that came out of a Bob the Builder children's show. It looks, you should look it up. It's I'm going like, to look it up it right is, now. That vehicle shall never be spoken of. It looks like a joke. It is, <laughs> it's got this weird kind of pinched long nose and then this it it honestly looks like mater or something from the pixar movies it's i don't know what they were thinking it, it's no <laughs> just just no it it looks <laughs> a little bit <laughs> i'm very i'm for any listeners of the podcast who are not watching this on youtube I apologize. I, it's right now for the people on YouTube, they're just watching me sit in stunned silence largely. <laughs> it looks like the vehicle that Homer Simpson created when he met his half-brother. Yes. Well, people like to have hot dogs, so it should have a hot dog holder. This is very confusing. Yes. And falls right into... Here's the, the hole it falls into. Somewhere there is probably a government regulation that says that vehicles have to be made in a certain way and in a certain place. And they are probably locked in by legislation that is forcing them to do that. They and do. as a result, this they is do. a government project. And as a result of that, this is the end result. <laughs> There, there's there's actually a, a rule in some of the uh, government policies that are coming through for electrification that it has to be an American company and they have to support unions. Yeah. So that right off the top, even though Tesla is an American company, they don't have unions. So right. that means that the U.S. government can't buy Tesla vehicles. So it's like they're going to be going to places like GM and Ford or whoever the hell made that <laughs> abomination. Right. <laughs> the mail truck. So... Uh, I guess in its favor, one of the things that we've seen in our lifetime, U.S. mail trucks always look like U.S. mail trucks. So this yeah. just continues that trend. I remember when we were kids, it was always fun to see the U.S. mail local carrier that would show up in what was effectively a Jeep with the steering wheel on the wrong side. Mm -hmm. And it was always like, yeah, that's a mail truck. So Hats off, U.S. mail. Hats off. <laughs> it's just, that's bizarre. Yes, it is. To go, uh, to make a right turn from that, doesn't Amazon use largely electric? They're moving to electric. They're they don't use it right now, but they're, they're, they're partnering with Rivian. And Rivian's going to be making all the Amazon trucks. Um, right. Delivery vans. Yeah. Right. So... Much of that is obviously on a local level and because the, the e-vehicle from the U.S. mail, they're not loading that with, with anything that needs to be shipped across state lines that we're talking about. That's for local delivery and, and final transport. Mile. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the same with the Amazon vehicles. But I couldn't help but wonder as I was watching, what are the economics at play that make a larger vehicle better when the cost per mile drops with electric vehicles and would it eventually potentially with some of the smaller vehicles that are already being made these mid-sized trucks the ones that aren't as big as a as a diesel burner but the ones that are comparable to the larger local amazon delivery stuff Right. Is there a tipping point where a company would say, well, it would take us more vehicles to be able to haul the equivalent of one of the big rigs, but the overall cost per mile is so low using those mm -hmm. vehicles, it's actually economically viable. Have you seen anything around that? Is there any movement in that direction? I haven't seen much on that. And when I was researching this, I did look at that and I couldn't find anything good 
around the economics of that. But I think that's kind of the direction things will go, especially when you talk about autonomous driving, like uh, the Tesla semi is obviously not going to be autonomous from day one, but eventually it will be. And one of the things they've talked about is you could theoretically have a driver in the lead vehicle, and then you could have two or three more semi trucks behind it that have nobody in them. And they are just following the lead semi. So right. it's like you could basically have like little semi trains that are driving down highways right. with one driver, but four trucks. So it's like in those cases, it's kind of what you're talking about. The economics of you're saving per mile. And because you're doing several of them in a row, you're actually taking more things with fewer drivers. So the economics kind of work in favor of it. Right. I think that's where the, the long-term vision is going to end up going. But for right now, um, the biggest challenge right now is it's easier to go with like the final mile, final mile vehicles because they do, they don't drive a lot of miles. It's like it, they may only drive 50, hundred miles in a small little radius. And it's harder to build these large trucks that have to haul 80,000 pounds and they have to go, you know, 600 miles. That's where it starts to get tough because you need massive battery packs, which eat into the cargo that you can carry because you're basically carrying this massive battery pack. So it's, it's this, we're in a kind of a tipping point right now with, um, the technology is getting good enough that these larger semis can actually work and they'll just get better over time. I wondered about the weight of the batteries themselves. What, what is the, is there a comparison between what the diesel truck weighs in and of itself against mm -hmm. what the electric vehicles weigh? Is there, are they basically the EVs comparable? are much heavier. They're very, they? they're much heavier. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so that then, as you mentioned, weighs, you know, on the ability to haul mm -hmm. certain, a certain tonnage of, of cargo. So you're, you're losing that in the long run. Right. You mentioned, you know, the final mile delivery stuff, the, the some of the comments in, around this video touch on things like that. Mike Bork wrote down here in New Zealand, a supermarket company has been running electric delivery trucks for about a year working in cities, not between them. So again, that's the kind of hmm. thing that you're talking about. And Richard Haney wrote, I think electric lorries, trucks would work well in the UK. They don't have huge distances to go. And if charging takes about 90 minutes, they can charge while on lunch or when in the depot delivery point. Yep. The 90 minute charge time is yeah. a big one to wrap your head around. And yeah. it, when you're talking about cars, this goes back to our conversation last week, the conversation about miles per bladder is literally that thing. Um, if you're driving a car, you pull into the, the rest stop off the highway, you park in a spot that allows you to charge You're charging. You go in, use the restroom. You maybe grab a snack, 15, 20 minutes, your car is topped off and yep. you're able to keep going. A 90 minute downtime is a lot of time for a truck that's on the road and time is money for the truck drivers. And there are issues yep. that we currently see in the news around truck driver safety and truck drivers needing to take a certain amount of rest per day and drivers who push themselves past those limits and the potential for accidents and the concerns around that. A 90 minute downtime is going to be, that's a huge culture shift, I think, for people who drive trucks for a living. Because mm -hmm. for them, that is potentially lost time yes. that they won't be able to recoup. And that's not quite like us driving to grandma's house and stopping at the halfway point and going in and getting a bag of chips and a soda and using the restroom and going for a little walk with the dog and then getting back in the car and we're ready to go. Yeah, we're not losing money. <laughs> yeah, we're not losing money. Yeah. So... I guess one of the things that occurred to me is does that culture shift begin to shift with where do you think that that shift needs to be embraced first? Does it need to be embraced in policies and legislation? Does it need to be embraced by the companies that are purchasing the trucks and willing to say, look, we understand this is going to be a different way of shipping or does it need to be, does this drive the technology to not have to have that 90 minute downtime? Does it, 
I think force the manufacturers to say, yeah, 90 minutes is a long time. We understand that, but we're working on it. And two years from now, we're going to have a 45 minute downtime and five years from now, we're going to have a 30 minute downtime. Where do you think that that culture shift is rooted? I think it's mainly in the companies. I don't think it's anything other than the companies. Like think about Pepsi. Like let's say they have a manufacturing plant and they're trying to get it to distribution centers. So you have a Tesla semi that only has to drive 250 miles. So it's well within its range. It's charging up while you're loading the truck. You drive the 250 miles straight without having to stop. You get to the depot as you're unloading it, it's charging back up again and it can reverse the trip again. So it's like, I think companies will find, well, the companies that will jump into this will find ways where that 90 minute charge time doesn't matter because it'll be charging while the vehicle is already stopped anyway for something else. So instead of like you and I getting out of the car to grab a bite to eat while the car is charging up, they're going to do the same exact thing. So I don't think we'll see companies buying into electric trucks that have to drive 700 miles straight because there's going to have to be a 90 minute charge time in the middle of that. They're not going to do that. So I think it's really just companies will jump into it when they find use cases where they can make the, the time and the economics work. And then until car uh, truck companies can actually get those charging times from an hour and a half to 45 minutes to 20 minutes, it's like as they can get those down, then you'll start to see the wholesale replacement of diesel in the, in the very long form trucking. But right. I, I don't think it's going to be policy-based. I think it's going to be completely economics and use case-based driven by the companies. I also wondered about, and I know nothing about how these trucks are, are put together. Um, is battery swap out something that is a potential solution here? It is. It is absolutely impossible. It's like the challenge though is like, think about, think about our phones. It's like our phones are now sealed, not user replaceable. And part of the benefit of that is you get lighter weight, smaller form factors. It's it, there's benefits for the use case of that, uh, with the negative of you can't change it out on your own. But if you have a phone that you can actually swap the battery, there's more points of failure, more mechanical points that can break or fail over time but you get the benefit of being able to swap things out. So I think there will be probably a, I think there's going to be companies that will probably try that because mm-hmm. if you can swap out a truck's battery in 10, 15 minutes versus having to wait an hour and a half, the, the economics may make that work. So it will be interesting to see if anybody goes that route, but th- that that has been on the table from some of the stuff I found. Mm-hmm. Some of the other comments on this included things like from Cinebit Technologia, who wrote, this is a bright future, but we need a revolution in power lines. I think that this is a reference to the ability of the grid to be able to manage the kind of power needs that you're talking about. Yeah. And in a response yeah. to that comment, Any Day now wrote, we also need a revolution in power production. How is charging all these vehicles all night on a renewable grid supposed to work without efficient and economic energy storage without a carbon free base load like nuclear or geothermal, which now both have their limitations. This will be a tough task. Do you see a relationship building between the need for these vehicles combined with the need for the power supply for the vehicles? Yeah, to a certain extent. I, I think a lot of comments like that, I think are, they're not wrong, but I think they're looking at it with, with too narrow a view because when you, based on all the people I've talked to in the industry, especially on grid scale systems, like I've talked to people at utilities and things like that, there are things that are being done that are going to be able to handle this. So I don't think it's some kind of like, oh my God we're not going to be able to support this. We're not going to be able to supply the power they need. The utilities are going to make gobs of money because they're going to be selling more electricity. They're planning for this. There are ma- they are absolutely planning for this. There are things with uh, smart grids that can be done that, to manage the systems we already have in place better to make it work. There's uh, charging stations where they basically build out their own little battery packs and solar panel systems on location 
to help supply that, that, that specific charging point. So it's like, there's these things that can be done, basically setting up microgrids and smart grids and the utilities are already kind of planning ahead and, and are looking at what's going to happen over the next five, 10, 20 years that they have to ramp up for, cause they see this coming. This is not like somebody's going to flip a switch and suddenly there's 1 billion EVs and, you know, half a million semi-trucks is suddenly here. It's, it's going to be, ramp, it's ramping up slowly. And so the utilities see the writing on the wall and they're trying to get ahead of it. So they're going to, they have to go hand in hand. If they don't go hand in hand, we're going to end up in a bad place. But everything I have seen, utilities are planning for this. So it's like, I am not worried about that aspect of it. And again, you've referred to the local, the last mile vision of yeah. it. It gets easier when the driving distances are, are shorter. One of the comments was, this is the sort of trucking technology that should be used at ports because ports run 24 hours a day with very local driving, large yeah. hauls of you know ships come in and then a truck is moving a huge amount of cargo, just a few miles from the port to get it away from the port and then going back to the ship and getting the next big batch and taking it off um, and doing that 24 hours a day and doing it all night. And from a perspective of energy use, you know, the electric on that scale works. It also works from the perspective of noise pollution. Mm -hmm. Um, that got me to thinking about places like airports. You, you know, again, the shipping that would be taking place at an airport location. If you had a truck that was needed to move to haul containers from place to place at an airport and, there seems to be the potential for lots of utility vehicles that work in local settings like that mm -hmm. for this kind of vehicle to make a lot of sense. And then I got to thinking about the, the larger vehicles at those locations themselves. And I'm curious, has there been any newer development around the electric, the electrification of shipping of the ships themselves? And I know you've looked into things with electric and solar as it would impact shipping and air travel. Has there been any recent development in either of those that would be worth sharing at this point? I'm actually planning on a video about shipping specifically, because there's a lot to dig into there, but like hydrogen is a potential future fuel for shipping because you sidestep the issues of uh, the weight of the battery packs and you can go long distance. It's really fast to refuel. So imagine gigantic ships that are carrying cargo that are not powered by fuel anymore. They're powered by hydrogen and they can go those massive distances and they could even generate their own hydrogen on board the ship as they go if they needed to. So it's like there's, there's aspects to this that are going to unfold over the next couple decades but yes there is definitely movement happening in basically every transportation sector it may not be batteries right but it's it's there's everybody's looking at different alternatives right i would also like to point out right now for our listeners that i don't think matthew intended to go with that incredible pun that there is movement happening in all transport sectors <laughs> no i did not <laughs> so hats off to you matt <laughs> Well played. Well played, sir. Yeah. My, 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 I got my second dose of my vaccine. So today I'm a little bit off. And so it's like, I, that was an unintended pun and I'm glad I made it. <laughs> Matt has foggy vaccine brain. Yes, I do. So transitioning to the second half of the episode, as we usually do, we'll throw out some suggestions of things we've been watching or ways we've been passing the time and Things are getting warmer. It's getting nice outside. And as a result, Matthew and I have both been continuing to stay inside and watch television. <laughs> yes. So, you know, as we do, <laughs> as we do. Uh, so I'm going to flip a coin. Matt, it's in the air. Oh, did you say tails? I think you did. You win. <laughs> you get to go first. All right. Um, just a quick follow up. Still on my Columbo marathon. And my God, I love that show. He is so amazing. Um, so amazing. But uh, I wanted to do a quick follow-up on two shows I mentioned before. One is the show Debris, which is that science fiction show about some 
spaceship from an alien race broke up and parts of it are falling under the earth and there's different governments are racing to get this debris because they do crazy things. I am now, I don't know how many episodes in, but I've watched a bunch. I really, really like the show. I, I love it. It's I'm a huge X-Files fan. Going all the way back to when X-Files was on the air, I actually built my very first website in like 1993, 94. That was a X-Files fan site. That was a cool site of the day on Yahoo back when mm. that was actually a thing. Uh, this scratches that X-Files itch for me. There, There is such an aspect of it. It's like taking the movie Arrival for kind of the way that it's the filming style and mixing it with the X-Files for just the weird stuff that happens week to week. Mm. Um, it's it's so cool. It's like, it's it's scratching that itch for me. I love it. It's really, really fun. It's not a perfect show. It's got some flaws, but overall, I, I do recommend watching it if you aren't watching it. So that's Debris. And what channel is that on again? That's on, I think it's NBC um, here in the US. I'm watching it on streaming. So it's, I can't remember where I'm watching it. Might be Hulu is I think where I'm watching it. Um, the other show, which is Shadow and Bone, which is on Netflix, which is based on the young adult uh, novels. I'm more episodes into it. And my initial pressing from the first episode, which was, wow, this is actually a really well-made show. It's just like debris. It's like, yes, it's like I'm several episodes in and it is holding up. It's a lot of fun. The world building's really good. There is that. I don't like the soap opera aspect of these young adult novels where it gets a little like teenage angsty, um, like the love triangle stuff. It's like I could do without that stuff, but it's not overly done where it's like Harry Potter. There's so much going on in the world that you can, there's a lot to chew on and a lot of things that can pull you in. So I, I really do recommend Shadow and Bone. But the thing I want to bring up that I watched last week is get over here the mortal Kombat <laughs> movie <laughs> i watched i there was the Mortal Kombat movie that came out like 20 years ago or something like that that was mm -hmm. oh man that thing was a joke um and this one with the modern take and the sensibility and the special effects we can do now there really is no there's nothing you can't do in films now you could whatever you can dream of you can do and you can make it look realistic this movie where the first one was like i think it was pg or pg-13 so it was like how do you make a movie about a game where people like ripping people's spines out in a finishing move and make it family friendly that's that was the last one this yeah. one uh doesn't pull any punches uh it like uh it's it's wow it is graphic there's a few uh finishing move moments in the in the movie that are just like a whoa i can't believe they did that <laughs> but it's um it they don't overdo it it's it, it's a, a they do it just enough. Um, the part about the movie that is really irritating to me is it's about more, they're setting up the whole lore of it's Mortal Kombat. It's a it's a competition between the other world and the Earth realm, and basically they're they're warring it out in this comp this competition so that to save the Earth realm. Like if they lose X number of competitions in a row, the other world will earn the right from the gods to come and just take over the earth realm. And so it's this, this competition that happens from the champions of the earth realm and the champions of the other world come together. And it's a big competition. So here's a movie that they talk about the competition, the entire movie and the competition never happens. <laughs> they talk about the entire movie as of, I was like, there's competitions coming and the, the, basically the bad guys are trying to cheat. They've won the last nine of the last 10. And if they win one more, they earn the right from the gods to come take over the earth. And so they're not going to put anything to chance. They're going to cheat and they're going to go kill all the earth, the earth people that are going to be in the competition to wipe them out. So they'll have no competition and they can just win by fiat and then can come rule the earth realm. Uh, that it was it. The first two acts of the movie are not great, but they're acceptable. They're acceptable. It's just, it's popcorn, just dumb entertainment. And then by the third act, I started getting angry at how lazy the script writing was, how bad the storytelling was, how they just basically gave up on everything they set up in the first two thirds. It was, it's it, it infuriating because they had very well-known, um, you know, actors that are like from you know, Japanese films and Chinese films that are like, you know, action stars in their own right. They got some serious talent 
And the opening of the movie takes place back in like the 1600s. And you can kind of see the origin of Scorpion. Like he's fighting guys off. He's just a human. He's fighting guys off. And he takes the rope and he ties his like little arrowhead to it. Starts whipping it around. It's like, yeah, that's where it came from. That's so cool. And by the end, it's kind of like, forget all that. Just forget all that. And they did the thing where they created a character for the movie that was not in the video game. So the hero that you're following, who's our avatar into the Mortal Kombat universe, because we're learning along with him about this whole thing. It's like, what's going on? And he's, yeah. he's, so he's our avatar. By the end of the film, he gets his superpowers and he's like the earth realm champion. And he's got the dumbest, the dumbest special ability, Sean. <laughs> I'm going to give this away. In the beginning of the movie, he's, he's a fighter in a like a MMA kind of fighting and he just, he gets his ass kicked every time. He's a good fighter, but then he always loses it right at the end. And he usually just ends up getting pummeled. So you want to know what they made his special power? He can take a beating. I was just going to say. <laughs> he gets the dumbest looking outfit. That's like this skin tight, weird looking thing. That's just stupid armor. And he ends up, when he finally figures out his special ability and gets it, and he's fighting the, what's his name, Gorgo or whatever it is. Like he's the big four-armed mm -hmm. demon guy. He's fighting him and the guy's punching him. Every time he's punching him, the part of his armor that he's hitting starts glowing red. And basically he's absorbing all of the energy from whatever's pummeling him. And then he can rechannel it to fight back. It is the dumbest, dumbest ability that I, it was like, okay, so this guy didn't exist. They're creating a character that didn't exist from the games. It was completely unnecessary, all of it. And then the characters that were great, like there's an actor, I can't remember what his name was. He plays the character Kano, who's this wisecracking just jerk. He's just a, he's just a douchebag is the best way to put it. He's fantastic. So there's characters in the movie that are really fun. They have a lot of quirkiness to them. They portray them pretty well, but the, the whole movie just falls apart by the end. I don't know why I was shocked by this because it's, it's, it's made Mortal by combat. A, it's more <laughs> a con, one. It's Mortal combat Two. I believe it's the, this director is his first film. And I think the screenwriter, it's one of his first screenplays. It's like, there's a whole bunch of newbie people to this. Mm -hmm. So it's like basically novice filmmakers making a video game movie. And it's just kind of like recipe for disaster. But at the same time, I still kind of recommend watching it. If you have HBO Max, it's free. It's a mm -hmm. summer blockbuster. If you just, and it's short, it's like an hour and a half. Sit down, turn your brain off, eat some popcorn and watch some finishing moves and corny dialogue and just just have some fun with it um i would not pay money to see it <laughs> i would not pay money to see it uh but it's it's for me it's like if you're gonna do a scale of one to ten it's like a four or five it's kind of like somewhere in that middle of acceptable entertainment but good right. special effects but they squandered a lot of potential which yeah yeah that reminds me of the how did this get made which is the podcast that looks back at movies and tries to examine what exactly is going on and and why are these movies being made and in some cases why are they failing and in other ways why are they succeeding and the original mortal Kombat is a movie that they did mm -hmm. and it wouldn't surprise me if they do the new one as yeah. well just based on what you're describing and that fits in with my first recommendation which is a how did this get made movie that was just the podcast was just released last week it's for a movie called the visitor and this is a movie that is from the late 1970s it is starring john houston who is one of the most celebrated filmmakers of the 20th century and it is I think accurately described as a combination of Rosemary's baby, baby, the exorcist and star Wars. Um, <laughs> it is star Wars. It is a movie I had never heard of. It is now a movie I love. It is a, not a good movie, uh -huh. but it is a great movie. If that makes any sense, it is a hell of a lot of fun to watch. I watched it with my my partner. Her response to it was, at the end of it, I very quietly said, I really love that. And she was like, I didn't. But I enjoyed watching it. 
So it's that kind of movie. If you're into watching weird, if you're into watching potentially bad, if you're into watching something that you can talk over while the things are happening and you don't mind having a conversation as opposed to other things where you're like, stop talking. I'm trying to hear the dialogue. This is a movie that you absolutely want to be talking with somebody you enjoy spending time with while you're watching the movie. And I also recommend it from the perspective of watch the movie and then listen to the How Did This Get Made podcast episode about it because it is a lot of fun. They do a great job. It's Paul Shear, Jason Menzugas, June Diane Raphael, and they talk about these movies very often with special guests. Um, and they just they just have fun. And this is an episode of the podcast where they did it in front of a live audience. And in that case, they take audience questions and there's audience response to things. And it's it just gets rowdy and fun and it's a good time where did you watch the movie where is it available it was it's it's available for rent so i rented it for i think it was three dollars i rented it from uh voodoo and it is a movie that after watching it i said i think i'm gonna buy it (laughs) (laughs) because i think i definitely want to watch it again it is the we've talked about this before things that you like to have on in the background Things that you can kind of tune in and out with. And the thing about this movie is the movie practically invites you to not pay attention to long portions of it. (laughs) And then it rivets your attention with, with something it has. If you remember the movie, the omen, um, strange means of killing people like, Mm -hmm. like the, the dark foreboding moment of a bird on the rooftop or even in Hitchcock's the birds, the use of birds as, as an ominous, dangerous power. Mm-hmm. This movie literally does have a flock of birds that attack people. This has a recurring falcon that is a threat inside the home. This the bird kills somebody in a car in a what is actually a very gripping and and disturbing attack in a vehicle while this man is driving the car. There are portions of the movie where the cinematography is interesting there are portions of the movie where the performances are vacillating between over the top scene chewing Mm -hmm. and in the next turn incredibly moving and and compelling and it is all done with a 1970s funk cop show soundtrack (laughs) that makes zero sense given everything that's going on the movie starts with scenes on what is supposed to be apparently another planet. And one of the viewers on the, um, how did this get made podcast commented that it resembles the final fight sequence in the last Jedi. It is this weird face off on this strange desert planet Mm -hmm. of two people who are clearly supposed to be powerful figures that do resemble Jedi and Sith. And they just stare at each other while the weather changes. And then one of them turns into a little girl. And then suddenly you're inside what looks like something from 2001, a space oddity, odyssey where everything is white and there is very clearly Jesus talking to a room full of children about (laughs) unspooling a space mythology around commander Yahweh hunting down Satine. So this is very thinly veiled mythology wrapped around God and pursuing Satan. And here's Jesus. And he's talking to these children when in walks John Houston, who is commander Yahweh And every time Commander Yahweh appears on screen, you get this punchy horn section that comes in with this wakata, wakata, wakata (laughs) music from a 1970s cop show. So that my partner and I began to refer to it as Yahweh, Yahweh (laughs) P.I. He's had enough. (laughs) And Yahweh is played by John Huston, who at this time was a 70 year old man who can barely walk. And there is a sequence in the movie where he walks down the world's longest escalator that has been turned off. And Uh it is a good two minutes of him just coming down a set of stairs while it cuts to people figure skating 
there is a ice skating battle going on while he's coming down the stairs. It is a funky, weird movie. I loved it. It was, <laughs> it was great. <laughs> I have to watch this. I have to, watch I would this. also like to refer to in the spirit of <laughs> with the visitor. It definitely is not for me. Hate watching but you were talking about Mortal Kombat in a way that sounded very much like hate watching to me where you're watching a thing and part of you is like, I should be turning this off. And a larger part of you is like, no, I'm getting some kind of visceral entertainment out of the fact that I'm not really enjoying it. Well, the, and, the last third, the last third. Yes. The first two thirds, I was actually kind of, kind of enjoying it. The last third, I was kind of hate watching it. <laughs> yeah. The, the, I've talked about the show before, on the podcast it's the show space 1999 which is a again 1970s it is a international production that was mainly uh i believe it was italian and british and it was done on a in an attempt to capture the audiences that were tuning in on star trek and star Wars. And it was a fairly well produced and acted series. But what has really been working for me is how over the top, and this I think goes hand in hand with the visitor, the seventies was really an interesting storytelling time because there was a lot of melodrama built up inside the the way that the acting was supposed to be portrayed. And one of the things that comes out in space 1999 that I've really been loving is it's making a fantastic argument that the commander of the space station and the, the setup for space 1999 is that there's an accident that hurdles the moon out of its orbit. And there's a space station on the moon and the humans that are there can't get off of the moon and the moon leaves the solar system and is just hurtling through space. So it's imagine a show that's about people trapped in a lifeboat and just going from place to place, but never able to find a new home. And they very quickly began to have these cosmic adventures where they pass through a thing that looks like it's an emerging black hole. And there's an entity that inhabits one of the people on the space station and, and stuff like that. So it's very star Trekky, very quasi Shakespearean at times. There's an episode where I thought it was actually brilliant writing in the way that it portrayed these people who had found themselves on another planet where they would never age. And it became a kind of King Lear story. And the acting in it was largely from its British actors. And I have a feeling that these actors were really approaching it with the, let's do this as if it's a stage adaptation of Shakespeare. They were mm -hmm. projecting to the back seats while being filmed for television. And there was the king character and the fool character and the two of them created some fantastic moments of stage while being in this sci-fi tv show so it has moments that are really kind of interesting historical moments of of a different way of producing television than is being done now but one of the, my favorite things is that the commander on it who's commander koenig who's played by i'm drawing a blank on his name right now martin lando of course Martin Lando's character, John Koenig, and his real-life wife, Barbara Bain, played the doctor on the show, Helena Russell. And the two of them have a lot of scenes together. And all he does is yell at her. <laughs> and the show, from episode to episode, makes tremendous arguments that it does not know it's making that he is a terrible, terrible commander. Uh -huh. He is constantly, you think about shows like Star Trek, where the dynamic between Kirk and Spock was Spock with his Vulcan logic saying, here is what logic says we should be doing. And Kirk saying, but I've got instincts here. I can read the situation. I can see through something. 
And there's something else happening here that we need to engage with. And the, the tension between those two viewpoints is not that one is right and one is wrong. The tension is there needs to be a balance between your heart and your head. Yeah. What Space 1999 does is Martin Lando's character, Commander Koenig, constantly makes decisions that immediately put people into danger. (laughs) And then nobody ever turns to him and says, wow, you really screwed this up. (laughs) Except for the doctor who, when she tries to do it, he shouts her down. (laughs) There's an episode where he legitimately has a tantrum Uh and storms out of her office. And yells at her, we'll file another report then. And then storms out of her office. And after that scene, I thought her first role as the doctor of this space station would be to gather the other other major officers of the station (laughs) and bring them all together and say, like, we got to get this Yahoo out of that captain's chair because he's going to kill us all. Because in that episode, what he was doing was standing by an old friend who with no evidence claimed that a space monster had killed his crew. The reality is as the viewer, we knew that this friend was right, Mm -hmm. but within the reality of the show, commander Koenig had nothing to base his trust on. And he was making an objectively awful set of decisions around what to do with this guy. And he was, and this was the best part for me. He was making these decisions even after that guy had attacked other members of the crew. (laughs) So from episode to episode, it's bad decision-making that immediately put people into danger. He does things like takes people to a place they've never been before, immediately separates them into smaller groups where people can be picked off one by one. He will put people into positions to defend the station and then refuse to give them the orders to actually do their job. In fact, putting them in positions of being in direct danger themselves. It is tremendous. It is so much fun to watch. I was about to say, why are you watching this? Because it sounds awful. It is. Here's the thing. It's well-produced. And the special effects teams behind it were some of the same special effects people who would go on to do the special effects for Star Wars. Mm. It is... It is 2001 level special effects in some cases. They're using models. It's a model of the moon. And they do some very fascinating things with when an alien or a, a long range exploration craft is found. And it looks like something from 2001. It looks like it's like three miles long and it is made of intricate nodules and compartments. And you can see from the exterior what the interior will be like. And mm. then they have an interior scene which looks like like open the pod bay doors how like long passages of what looked like the interior of a strange hotel with smooth walls and these people walking in silent shots of long silent pauses of them working on computers and keeping the ship running and showing what day-to-day life is like in a long-term voyage like this so it has moments like that that are like, this is really kind of fascinating television, that this was made in this way to reflect a 2001 vision of what the future could be. Mm-hmm. And it was trying to tell the heroic tale of survival in the way that a Star Trek would. But somebody involved in crafting the show just created a captain who just is a bad decision maker. And he also had that middle-aged man, 1970s middle-aged man spread. Oh, yeah. So there's nothing about this guy running into the situation. Like Kirk runs into the room and people are like, oh, thank God this guy's here. Yeah. It's like this guy runs into the room and you think, oh, somebody's uncle is here. (laughs) (laughs) But it also has this positive side effect. And it's not because of boredom. This is a show that relaxes me to a point. That if I'm not feeling great and I put it on and I lay it puts down, you in a good place. it puts me in a great place. I have warm, fuzzy naps that just make me feel better. I'll be half awake. I'll be hearing the show. I'll have no idea what's going on because my eyes are closed. But just hearing people say things like, well, here comes that space monster. 
makes me feel like I'm in a good spot. <laughs> so I do recommend the show. It's available for free through an app called Stir. I think it's on a couple of other of the free TV apps like Tubi and stuff like that. So if you look for Space 1999, it's great background watching. Uh, there's only two seasons but it's the 1970s. So seasons were like 40 episodes long or something like that. So it feels like there's a thousand episodes of it. It's, <laughs> it's probably 50 total, but it's a, uh, it's a show that I enjoy watching and it's got a lot of very strange moments, but people taking it very seriously. And I think that that's a big part of it is that the people working on this really thought that they were doing something. They were taking an approach, which was let's treat this with respect and mm-hmm. I think that that carries through. And I think that's what resonates with me as opposed to something like Mortal Kombat. It sounds like if you get the sense that everybody involved is like the third act really doesn't matter. <laughs> that's not great. That's not great production of a film. So. Yeah. So people should let us know. Have they seen any of these things? Have you hate watched anything? If you do hate watch, what are you hate watching? Let us know. I love a good hate watch. Yeah, me too. I'm also in the vein, I'm looking for something that would be in the vein of an elementary style TV show. And Matt, maybe debris might be that kind of show. Something that's a little bit quiet, a little bit serious, a little bit light, but something that is not loud, punchy, attention grabby, something that's good later night viewing. So if anybody has any suggestions in that vein, I would love to hear it. Please let us know what you think about that question or what you thought about this episode. You can find the contact information in the podcast description on YouTube. That would be directly below the video. Please do subscribe. Subscribe wherever it's most convenient for you. You've got your podcast providers and you've got YouTube. We have a way to directly support the podcast. You can visit stilltbd.fm. You'll see the support the podcast link there. You can put some coins in the jar. We appreciate it. Please also remember that you can support us just by watching or just by listening, subscribing, leaving a review, sharing us with your friends. All of those are terrific ways to support the podcast. We really appreciate it. And of course, the podcast helps the channel. The channel helps Matthew. And then Matthew gets vaccine fog brain. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening, everybody. We'll talk to you next time.